I'll be reading this morning from 1 Kings chapter 12, beginning in verse 25. 1 Kings 12, 25. Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there, and he went out from there and he built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom will return to the house of David. If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will return to their Lord, even to Rehoboam, king of Judah. And they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So the king consulted and he made two golden calves. And he said to them, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Behold, your gods, O Israel, that brought you up from the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel and the other he put in Dan. Now this thing became a sin, for the people went to worship before the one as far as Dan, and he made houses on high places, and made priests from among all the people who were not of the sons of Levi. And Jeroboam instituted a feast in the eighth month of the fifteenth day of the month, like the feast which is in Judah, and he went up to the altar. Thus he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves which he made. And he stationed in Bethel the priests of the high places, which he had made. Then he went up to the altar, which he had made in Bethel on the 15th day in the eighth month, even in the month which had, he had devised in his own heart. And he instituted a feast for the sons of Israel and went up to the altar to burn incense. We'll pray. God, thank you again for all that you are to us, Lord. We have been so, so blessed in the Lord Jesus Christ, lavished with every blessing in the heavenly places. Thank you that we've been made complete in him. Thank you, God, that, that you are our wealth and our inheritance, and we could never have anything more than you. We're grateful, God, for how you've already ministered to us this morning um, through song and in prayer, through the reading of your word. And we ask that you'd also minister to us, God, as we look at your word together. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. You may be seated. It is great to be together on a Sunday morning and to have this opportunity to gather in the name of Jesus and to worship him. And when you think about what God has given us as the body of Christ comes together, it is in many respects very different than the Old Testament, is it not? We don't have to come with a bull, with a goat. There's no blood being shed. Boy, I'm, I'm glad. It's already the blood of Christ has been shed once and for all, never to be sacrificed again. So we come in remembrance of what he has done. There's very little form or ritual that has been outlined in Scripture for us as the church, whereas in the New Testament, Every moment that they stepped, that came into that temple complex, everything was orchestrated. There was detail, and it was all given by God. And it was never meant to be routine, but it was not meant to be deviated from. God determined who was going to be a priest. You couldn't just aspire to be a priest. God determined what sacrifices. God determined what days. Everything was just detailed out by God. We come to the New Testament, and the Lord hasn't done that. But he has given some form, some details. We know, for example, when he says this, is, this kind of person and this kind of person only can be an elder in a church. And so in Titus it says an elder then must be. Not should be, this is a negotiable, this is a good idea, must be. And so other than those qualifications of an elder, 
There's really very little that God has given to the church on how to do things when we come together. So there's broad parameters. Pray when you come together. Read God's word when you come together. Sing when you come together. Speak from God's word. Share communion when you come together. But it doesn't tell us how much to focus on any one of those things. It's up to us before God, and the form has not been given other than the leadership and what that is to be. We can't improve on what God has done. Even though there's very little form to it for us in the church, isn't it good? And it's just a taste of heaven. How, why would we ever willingly forfeit what we've been given? It makes me wonder when I see people that can so easily just stop going to church. And I just go, what did you have that you can so easily give it up? It must not have been much. And now we come here to Jeroboam, and the reason I'm starting this message this way is because this is Jeroboam. Israel has been given so much. I mean, God has, has blessed them with himself. His presence resides in Jerusalem. They have the privilege of coming into the presence of God on a regular basis. And now Jeroboam becomes king, and the nation has been divided, ten tribes to the north, two tribes to the south. The ten tribes in the north called Israel, two to the south, Judah. And Jeroboam goes, we've got a major problem here. We've got two nations with one history, one language, and one religion. How can we be two separate nations? It's not going to work. And so he goes, can't change the language. And by the way, there's no physical land barrier between Israel in the north and Judah to the south. Nothing. Mediterranean Ocean, Jordan River, mountains to the north, desert to the south, but there is no land barrier that goes between Judah and Israel, just like there's nothing between Canada and the United States. The 49th parallel is just imaginary. And so he goes, this won't work. Even though God had told Jeroboam, I am going to allow you to be king, and I will even establish a dynasty for you if you walk in my ways, Jeroboam refuses to believe that. And so in an act of unbelief and an act of rebellion, he says, God will not establish me, even though God has said I would be king and I'm king. <coughs> he goes, can't believe God to establish me. So he takes matters into his own hands. He goes, can't change the language, can't change the history, unless you're a Democrat. And he goes, so... Sorry, I just had to, t I just couldn't resist. So he said, <laughs> that was not meant to be an applause line, I'm sorry. He goes, the one thing I can change is the religion. And overnight, overnight, he changes their religion. Now, First and Second Kings has a different theme than First and Second Chronicles. First and Second Chronicles is all about the line of David, one dynasty. And it's all about how God has blessed David so that the people of Israel would recognize we want to walk in the ways of David. First and Second Kings is not just about David, it's about all the kings. And the point that God's making is that he is illustrating through each of these kings that when you walk in my ways, you will be blessed. Speaking of Israel. 
If you don't walk in my ways, then it's going to go bad for you. And so the kings that are highlighted are the ones that are the best example of that. And so David, for example, great example in First and Second Samuel and on into Kings of how God blessed that man because he had a heart for God. Just as simple as that. Solomon, whole first half of Kings about Solomon. And God is showing us how it started out with great blessing and ends up not so because his heart was turned away from God. The last half of 1 Kings is going to be about Ahab. Ahab is an example of how when you sell yourself out to evil, this is what's going to happen to you. So what is God telling us in this? He's telling us that the most significant thing about any political leader, about any ruler, and about any individual, whether you're in politics or not, is not your power or your political influence. It is the spiritual influence that you have on others around you. That is the thing that God is looking for, the spiritual influence that you have on others. I believe that this is why we are not judged for our works immediately when we step into heaven. The Bema Seed of Christ does not take place the moment that you die. And the great white throne judgment for unbelievers does not take place the moment that they enter into heaven. Those are distant things after we have passed away. Why? Because the spiritual influence that we have while on this planet continues long after we've died. And so God knows that, and that's why He is withholding the reward at the Bema Seat for believers. Because you can live your short life on earth and generations be impacted for Christ after you're gone. And God is going to say, I'm rewarding you for what happened even after you died because of the influence that you had. And the same thing toward evil for those that don't know the Lord. That generational impact of evil is something that can go on almost seems like forever. God knows that. And he says, so we're going to wait until it's all said and done. And then we're going to put everything in the scales. So Jeroboam says, can't change the history, can't change the language, but I can change their, their religion. And Jeroboam becomes the high water mark of evil in Israel. And that will be that way until Ahab comes. And that will be that way until Manasseh comes. You ever been down to Rudy's and go into the back room and they've got red lines on the back wall? The high water marks of the floods, right? Well, in the Bible, that first line would be Jeroboam. And the next line would be Ahab. And if you had a third line, it'd be Manasseh. Okay, they are the high water marks of evil in the Old Testament kings. And it starts with Jeroboam. And it has to do with spiritual influence. So he looks and he's, he's very shrewd in this. In fact, so shrewd, I wonder if Satan wasn't inspiring this. Verse 27, if this people go up to offer sacrifices in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn away after their, after their Lord King Jeroboam. So I've got to influence their heart. He wants their loyalty. So he goes through their heart. And then he says the best way to get their loyalty is through their heart, and the best way to influence their heart is through their what? Worship. 
Worship is a big deal. And all humanity worships something. We have been created to worship. There is nobody on this planet, even the atheist, who is not worshiping something. Worship is huge. And so he says, that's the way I'm going to get their hearts. That's the way I'm going to get their loyalty through their worship. So verse 28, so the king consulted and he made two golden calves. And he said to them, this is key, it is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Behold your gods, O Israel, that brought you up from the land of Egypt. Loyalty is essential. That is the principle. The rationale is that loyalty is a heart issue and the heart follows what it worships. But how do you, what, on what justification can you get people to just jettison everything they've had overnight? During COVID, the justification was the fear of getting COVID. And we are so willing to just jettison everything and say, I'll sit at home and watch from TV. That is astounding to me still. The freedoms that we've had in this country that we are so quickly give away because we're afraid of an illness. It makes you wonder if we ever appreciated the freedoms that we had. It makes you wonder if you ever loved coming to church and being with God's people when you can so quickly just walk away from it. It makes me wonder if the people living in this area of Israel ever appreciated what they had. When a new guy comes on the throne and overnight everything, he just says, let's do it different. Well, that sounds like a good thing to me. I'm tired of going down to Jerusalem three times a year. It's too hard. And so appealing to that sense of convenience, it is too much for you to go to Jerusalem. Well, who determined they were supposed to go to Jerusalem? God. Does God give us too much? Well, the answer is yes and no. He will never bring anything into our lives that he does not supply the grace for. But all of life is too much for us apart from His grace. All of life. What He's doing, how, how do you move people like this? An appeal to convenience and an appeal to the sensual, to what I can see and get my hands on, what makes me feel good. Because remember, the religion of Israel that God revealed to them, that God prescribed for them, even though it involves animal sacrifices and, and there was music and it was glorious. I mean, it was a beautiful worship. You are worshiping the unseen God and you are not allowed to make any graven image of Him. No idolatry, no graven images. He was to remain, in a sense, mysterious and beyond comprehension. This was God's will. And now they're being offered something that appeals more dramatically to the senses. I can see that calf. I can, I can somehow just appreciate God more. 
Ian Thomas has been with Jesus for quite a few years now. He used to come to his hill every year. And what he was an amazing preacher. But what most people don't remember about him is he also could sing. And he loved to sing. And I remember more than one Thanksgiving conference, after he had preached, he would lead in the final song. And boy, he, he was good. Really, really good. But I, boy, that man would go on a tear about music that appealed to the soul rather than to the spirit. And he says, there is soulish music and there is spiritual music. I think what we did this morning appeals to the spirit. Now, we do a lot of things in camp that appeal to the soul. Pharaoh, Pharaoh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Well, that thing, you know, I'm like, oh, man. Twelve men went to spy on Canaan and all that. And I'm not saying there's no place for any of that, but if that's all we're leaving the kids with, it's just fun, happy songs, we have done a grave disservice. Grave disservice. And we should be wise enough, discerning enough as Christians to listen to the Spirit of God. Is this leading me to the Spirit? Is this just superficial and soulish? And what Jeroboam offered was a cheap, soulish substitute for the Spirit of God. And they liked it. That should say something about our human nature. That we like cheap substitutes to being in the true presence of the true God. He chose Bethel and Dan. Remember, this is a shrewd man. This wasn't just a flip of the coin. It wasn't just based on where they were located. Dan is in the extreme northern part of Israel. Bethel is in the extreme southern part of Israel. That was a factor. But there were lots of villages in the north and lots of villages in the south. Why these two villages? Shrewd man. I believe that even today, cities, communities have proclivities toward evil. That, they, that the stage has been set for them to be the first domino to fall, even today. Is it any surprise that Austin has become as lawless as it is today? When their motto for generations has been, keep it weird? Who should be surprised? Most lawless city, probably in Texas now, Austin. Can't even hire, they can't even get people to go on the police force in Austin. Certain communities and cities have a proclivity, have an inclination. They are set up, they are ripe fruit for the devil to take advantage of. Why Dan? Why Bethel? Did you know Dan was never supposed to be in the northern, northern part of Israel? They were supposed to be on the Mediterranean seacoast where the Philistines were. That's what God gave them. That was God's assigned territory for them. But guess what? It was too much for Dan. It wasn't convenient for Dan. It was too hard, too costly. 
and God wouldn't have life be too hard. If things are too hard, it must not be God's will. And so they loaded up and they moved to the northern part of Israel where they found an indefensible town, a town with no alliances, easy to wipe them out. And along the way, they took a man who was a Levite functioning as a priest to an individual family that had idols, and they gave him a job promotion, and they said, why don't you be a priest to an entire tribe instead of to one man? And they stole the man's idol and stole the man's priest, and the man was functioning as a priest against the law of God. Everything about Dan was wrong. And that had been going on for generations is there any, any surprise that Jeroboam chooses Dan to put a golden calf? It was one more small compromise. I've said it before, and I tell you, I hope it's a lesson that I never forget. Nobody takes a flying leap off a cliff morally. Whenever you see moral disaster in somebody's life, it is one more small step. For them. It is not a flying leap. And I had that strongly impressed upon me when I was a student at His Hill, and the assistant director, who later became a direct, the director of His Hill, it seemed like just in one moment walked away from his family, committed adultery, and never looked back. And I remember talking to an older man about that, and I said, you know, he was just so, he t I asked him why, how that happened. He said, I, Charlie, I was just so stressed out, so worn out, and, and it just in a moment of weakness. And this older man said, don't believe a word of it. I don't know that man, I've never met that man, but I can tell you this, what the huge monumental choice he made was one more small choice in his mind. That is always the way that it is. And he was right. He was absolutely right. Dan, in accepting a golden calf, made one more small choice. What about Bethel? Bethel was called Luz before it was called Bethel. Jacob ran away from Esau because he swindled his birthright from his brother. And his brother wanted to kill him. And so mom and dad sent him away. And he went running. And he spent the first night in this little village, outside this little village called Luz, camping out, sleeping on a rock. I don't know how he slept. During the night, God appeared to him. And he sees a ladder going from heaven to earth. And angels going back and forth on the ladder. And God speaks to him in the dream. So he wakes up the next morning and he renames that little town of Luz Bethel, house of God. But what we forget is what he said that morning when he woke up. Let me read it to you. Surely, this is Jacob, surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. How awesome is this place. Not God, this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. And then Jacob made a vow. If God will be with me and keep me, 
I will return to my father's house in safety. Then the Lord will be my God. One of the things I want to find out when I go to heaven, I want to say, Jacob, when did you get saved? Because I read this and I'm going, Jacob was not yet regenerate. Did he have an inclination toward God? Yeah, he wanted the birthright. Did he have some spiritual hunger? Sure, but does that make you saved? Lots of people with spiritual hunger that are not saved. If God blesses me, then he will be my God. That's a bad statement. But even worse than that, this place, this place, pure paganism. God is not more in one place than another. Wherever Jacob had spent the night, God would have spoken to him. It had nothing to do with the dirt that he was on. And yet, the people of Bethel embraced that paganism. This is a special place. How sad. It is good to gather in the name of the Lord. But this building is not a special place. Wherever we were to gather, it would be good. The Christians in Rome gathered in the catacombs. And I happen to think they looked forward to it. And it wasn't because of the skeletons lying in the caves all around them. Because they were with the body of Christ. Hundreds of years go by. And this place is corrupted. Bethel is spiritually corrupted. Because they are a superstitious people focused on the significance of things that have no significance. Rather than on God. No wonder Jeroboam chooses Bethel. See, these two communities were predisposed to one more compromise. Spiritual decisions truly have generational impact. And you catch in the reading when I went through this morning how many times it says, he made, he made. Look back at verse 31. He made houses of high places. He made priests from among the people who were not the sons of Levi. Why is that significant? Because every one of those men deserved to die. That's what the scripture says. Anybody who is a self-appointed priest outside, not just of the house of Levi, but outside a certain family within the house of Levi is to be executed. He doesn't care. Verse 31, um, verse 32, Jeroboam instituted a feast in the eighth month on the 15th day. You know what he's doing? He's giving a counterfeit. He's giving an option other than the Feast of Tabernacles, which was on the seventh month on the 15th day. So he's completely reorganizing the, the religion that God has given, even to giving substitute festivals for the ones that God had prescribed. In the middle of verse 32, it says that um, he was in Bethel sacrificing calves, which he made. The end of the verse, on high places, which he made. Then he went up to the altar, which he had made. And then which he, did, he, devised, which he devised in his own heart. And he instituted a feast. Now, what could possibly go wrong with a religion that is totally man-made? 
There was one explanation for this, and it was Jeroboam. I hope you don't need to be reminded, but I know we all do. That's what a lot of Sunday is about, is just reminders. Whatever is not of faith is sin, no matter how good the idea is. Anything that has its origin in you or me is sin. Whatever has its origin in God is good. And that is the gold, silver, and precious stones. If you ever want to know what the difference is between wood, hay, and stubble and gold, silver, and precious stones, it is not what you do. It's what you've permitted God to do. What you have believed God for. That is the difference between gold and silver and wood, hay, and stubble. And everything that Jeroboam has instituted has derived solely from him. And there is no good in it. Let me give you some applications. True worship is true in its worship. In other words, theology matters when it comes to worship. Theology matters. And everything that Jeroboam has instituted is bad theology. It's bad worship because it's bad theology. Worship matters. It really bothers me when I've heard people on more than one occasion stand in a pulpit and say doctrine doesn't matter. God has called us to worship Him in spirit and in truth. That is what He is looking for. And God hates worship that is false because the theology behind it is false. We all worship, but we do not all worship in truth. Patsy and I had a half-hour conversation with a Sikh cab driver in Vancouver last month. Fascinating conversation. As soon as we got in the cab, I started, saw the turban. Are you Sikh? I am. Older man, probably, you know, my age. And so really old. And, and we talked nonstop for the whole half hour. He was not, you know, bashful about telling me what he believed. And it was just, a, I learned more about what Sikhs believe than I'd ever heard in my life in that half hour. He is a zealous Sikh. He is a devout Sikh. He worships, he prays religiously. They have been, it has been prescribed for them how long to pray every day and morning prayer and evening prayer. Pretty impressive. He tells me his theology behind this. It's all works based. Believes that, that his dog who sits next to him and listens while he prays is praying with him because the dog has a soul. And the dog might be a man in the next life. Or he could be a dog in the next life if he doesn't say his prayers every day. A really interesting conversation. But each time that he would tell me what he believed, I'd say, that's so interesting. I didn't know that. Let me tell you what I believe. Let me tell you what the Bible says. And great. Never got combative or anything. But I'm just telling you, everybody worships. 
But not everybody worships in truth. And it does matter. On the cruise ship, we had two-hour dinners every night with total strangers. I'm not real comfortable with that kind of thing. But it was good for me. About halfway through it, I was kind of getting into it a little bit. I mean, I got to thinking, in my entire adult life as a Christian, there has never been a time when I have, for ten nights in a row, had a two-hour dinner with a perfect stranger. And I doubt that will ever be re repeated. A couple different times, because I would usually, I started starting the conversations, because I realized, you know, it's, these are kind of awkward settings and so on. Somebody's got to say something, so I... What are your names? What do you do? You know, and, and so hoping they would ask me what I do, and I would tell them. And then, and then it's, sometimes it's like a bomb or a lead balloon. Well, that doesn't go anywhere. And, but other, sometimes people start asking questions. And I, one lady in particular is very talkative, but I realized after the dinner was over, it was a, it was a protective talk. Because the more she talked and asked me questions, the less she had to reveal about herself. 70-plus-year-old woman, atheist, not married to the man that she was traveling with who was in his 80s. Very interesting couple. And she said, we all worship the same God. We're all going to the same place, and there's many ways to get there. I'm sorry. That is a lie. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. That may not be something that people like to hear, but it is the truth. And if we're worshiping just some generic God who everybody is going to get to him sooner or later, that is a lie of the worst kind. True worship always involves sacrifice. Always. Even today, where there are no more blood sacrifices being offered, nothing has changed about worship. This is why, and I appreciate this so much about Kelly, in all the years that he led music at his hill and helping with leading music now with Bernie Bible Church, He's been so clear with our students when he was in charge of, of our music teams. These are not worship teams, he would tell them. Explaining to them what worship is. And worship is not music. It may involve music, but you have no power to elicit worship in somebody else's heart. Worship is something between the worshiper and God. You can't create it in someone else. In the Old Testament, it was always about, it was never about the sacrifice, it was always about God. It involved sacrifices, but that was not the focus. In the New Testament, the sacrifice has been paid. But nonetheless, Paul says in Romans 12, 1 and 2, I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies, what? A living sacrifice. And then he goes on to say, which is your spiritual service of what? Worship. Present your bodies, living sacrifice, that is worship. 
Now, we can sing great music, and we can be stirred emotionally. But if that emotional experience has not translated into me and my heart before God saying, here I am, don't call it worship. It was emotional. Maybe gave you goosebumps. But if it doesn't translate into the heart yieldedness, that heart disposition of Jesus, I am yours, then it is not worship. It's merely music, as good as it is. False worship has no sacrifice. Or false worship has sacrifice that does not acknowledge the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus. There are lots of people going to churches, Protestant and Catholic churches, who do not acknowledge the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ. They are still living their lives as though a relationship with God depends on us and what we do for Him, rather than an expression of thanksgiving for what He has done for us. And that is not true worship. False worship appeals to the senses, the soul, rather than to the spirit. False worship wants to feel. True worship wants to love and obey. False worship only wants to get something from God. True worship wants to honor and obey God in gratitude for what He has done for us in Christ. It is too much for you is a lie. That makes worship about us and not about God. I really appreciate the ministry of Rio Grande Bible Institute. And it's wonderful having David and his wife here this Sunday. I've known about that ministry for probably 50 years now. I knew about them when we were living down in Corpus Christi. But I really began to know more about them when I first came to his hill as a Bible school student. And one of our guest speakers, he and his wife had been retired missionaries to Mexico. In fact, he had been born and raised in Mexico to missionary families, and to a missionary couple, and he was a second generation uh, missionary to Mexico, Dr. John Dale. And he taught every year at his hill, and he also taught at Rio Grande Bible Institute. And I will never forget Dr. Dale telling us at his hill, there is this little Bible college in Edinburgh, Texas, that is preparing people to go back to their countries and die for Christ. Wow. And then I remember fast forwarding a number of years, I'm a student at Dallas Seminary. And I'm in the dorm, single guy, and there were probably 10 or 12 of us sitting around the little common area that we had in the dorm. And, and it was, we were first semester students, or second semester, doesn't matter. But some of the guys were just, just going, isn't it great being at the best seminary in the world? We are so blessed. Now, I was thankful to be at Dallas Seminary. And it was a very good school. 
at that time. But I didn't, something in me just recoiled at the pride that was being said. And I looked at those guys and I said, I know of a little school on the Texas-Mexico border that is preparing its students to die for Jesus. I've never had one professor yet talk about dying for Christ as the cost of following him. And they said, wow. And every one of those guys said, you're right. We haven't heard anything about counting the cost unto death. The motto of the school, it's a good motto, preach the word. Just as simple as that, preach the word. But I have to tell you, the atmosphere at that time, I don't know what it is today, but at that time the atmosphere on campus was the underlying message behind the motto. Because sometimes it was clearly stated, preach the word and you will have a thriving, successful ministry. Not a costly ministry, not a difficult ministry, but a thriving, successful ministry. Really? This is so contrary to what we see in Scripture. Too much for you? Paul said in Philippians 3, I have counted all to be lost in view of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, when he's complaining about the difficulty of a thorn in his flesh, and amazingly, he only prayed about it three times. (laughs) That's it. Wow. And Jesus clearly speaks to him and says, stop praying about it. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made known in weakness. And you're going to stay weak so that you can know my power. As I already said, everything in life is too much for us if we are living in our own strength. I don't care what your problems are. And your problems next to my problems may look like Mount Everest. We've got a dear lady that's part of this fellowship who's back in the hospital now. I don't think in my life I have never known, that I've ever known anyone who has suffered as much as she has. But I so appreciate seeing God's grace in her life and seeing the power of God in her weakness. I don't know that she even sees it, but all of us that know her know she is a miracle. Christ and His grace are sufficient in our weakness. And God's design is non-negotiable. His design is an absolute, even if it seems too much. What am I talking about practically, applicationally for where we live? We're not talking about worship in Jerusalem. God's design for Israel. Jerusalem, no other place. What do you have in your life that God has given you? See, God gave them Jerusalem knowing some of them would live up in the north and it would take a lot more effort to get down to Jerusalem than if you lived 10 miles away from Jerusalem. He knew that. Life is not fair. 
God knew when he set up that institution that some people would have it harder than others. He knew, but he also knew they would experience more of the grace of God than others. That when those people in those outlying territories, three times a year, all the men of, of, of battle age, 20 years and old, all of them would come down and worship and leave their homes undefended, they would have to trust God like nobody else in that nation did. And they would see the reality of God's presence and power and provision like nobody else in that nation would. But yes, it cost them more. Cost them much more. You pray for years that God would give you a spouse. And then marriage becomes impossible. You long to have children. And they're born and you know you recognize this as God's gift. And then the kids don't do so well. I wasn't surprised, but yet I was when we were on that cruise for 12 days. Most of the people on that boat were mine and Patsy's age, 60s older, retired folks. Some of them one person, one couple we talked to, and he wasn't even 60 yet. He and his wife took an early retirement. In 2023, he will have cruised, he and his wife, eight months. I want to ask the question, what's wrong with home? Do you not have children? Do you not have grandkids? Do they not like you? We enjoyed our cruise so much. So thankful for that gift. Would I want to do that every year? Absolutely not. I love you too much. I love my kids too much. My grandchildren. I can't imagine doing that even every year. Two weeks. Families don't always go well. Marriages don't always go well. But I know this trying to get away from what God has given, goes worse. You cannot run from God. And if God, this is what God has pressed in on you. Man alive, I remember when God gave us four kids in four and a half years, and I'm thinking, maybe this wasn't God. <laughs> maybe we just got, you know, and it was hard, so hard for Patsy. Wow. But the answer is not escape. It is to desperately come to Jesus in the midst of it. It is never our right to determine how much is too much. Our obligation, like Jesus before the cross in the Garden of Gethsemane, said, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. But it wasn't. And he said, let thy will be done, not mine. Our obligation is God's will. He has the right to demand. It is true that God's will is not fair and that some have it harder than others. But God's grace will be more than sufficient. Bond servants, slaves of Jesus Christ, and that is what we are if we've placed our faith in Him, can never be inconvenienced. They have no right to complain. A slave has no right to complain about anything. 
we had a man from the Philippines that had been 25 years cleaning up people's cabins. Wonderful servant. Nothing but a smile on his face. And I know he's been trained on it, you know, and he's going to get an evaluation after every cruise. I think it was from his heart. Even though he missed his family, and he was working months at a time on a cruise ship so he could send all the money back home to his family, none of that caused him to have his joy robbed in yielding his heart to serving well where he is. Slaves have no right to complain about anything. Worship is on God's terms, not ours. He determines how he will be approached, who, when, where, how, or all upon him. And God loves us enough to bring us to the end of ourselves. And sadly, we spend all of our energy trying to avoid coming to the end of ourselves. All God's demands no matter how minimal they are, are too much when the heart refuses to bow in worship. That's what I've seen in my heart. It's all too much. No matter how minimal it is, you could look at my life and go, you're reacting to that? That is nothing. You're right. But when the heart is unbowed to God, any demand is too much. The problem is never the command of God or the hardships of life. God is good and God is life. And to deviate from God and His Word and His will is to reject life and to embrace death. Man-made religion, and that is what is, mu is much of what is practiced today even in the church. Man-made religion is rejected and despised by God. He loathes it, no matter how well-intentioned we are. It is too much for you. Let me just read you some words from Larry Crabb. Over the last month, I picked up an old book of his um, called Connection. And I appreciated these words. Our fierce battles are fought when we seek with all of our heart to trust God so fully that we see every misfortune as something He permits and wants to use, to know Him so richly that we turn to no one and nothing else to experience what our souls long to enjoy, to love Him so completely and with such consuming passion that we hate anything that comes between us and eagerly give it up. That is our fierce battle. He goes on to say, the bigger battle involves my relationship with God, not my marriage, not my children, my relationship with God. Do I trust Him to continue working in my life even when I am plagued by crippling emotions? Do I know Him well enough to turn to Him for comfort rather than demand relief from my pain through whatever means are available? Do I love him so deeply that I will welcome additional suffering that it might draw my soul closer to him? Will I pay any price to know him well? The core battle in everyone's life is to relate well to God, 
to worship him, enjoy him, experience his presence, hear his voice, trust in him in everything, always call upon him, calling him good, obeying every command, even the hard ones, and hoping in him when it seems, hope seems to disappear. That's the battle the community of God is called to enter into in each other's lives. Keep in mind, solving other people's problems is really a secondary battle where you may not be able to help. The primary battle is to know, God's, to know God well. Don't get so caught up in people's problems that you lose sight of a simple truth. Every problem is an opportunity to know God better. Think more about how people's problems are influencing their relationship to God. Think less about how you might be able to help them solve their problems. Don't confuse secondary battles with primary ones. I read Crabb and I hear a very compassionate man. He is not unconcerned with people's needs and hurts. But he says, solving those problems is secondary. The main thing is to encourage people. That's the biggest battle, to encourage one another in the midst of the problems. Come to Jesus. Come to Christ, because that is the primary thing God is after. And if life is too much, and that drives me to Jesus, then the too much of life is God's gift to me. I'll close us in prayer. God, I thank you that your ways are good. You are holy and righteous in all that you do. Life is too much for us, God, and there is an enemy of our souls who is seeking to destroy everything that is good. Our families, our marriages, our faith itself. And God, we are desperate for you. We know, Lord, in our hearts and our souls, we truly know there is nothing anyone else can do. Our help comes from you and you alone. And Father, even if you should not alleviate the pain and the suffering and the trials of life, I pray that our hearts would be purified in them and that we would long for you and see you and be a people who walk humbly and uprightly with you because of the suffering, because it is purifying us. And that like Paul, we might say that we consider everything else to be rubbish in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord. Thank you, God, for your ways. Thank you for what you have revealed and given. And I pray that we would cherish it, God, with all of our being. In Jesus' name, amen.